Welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. This week, my guest is Maria Bustios, the editor-in-chief of Popula, an alternative news and culture magazine that launched on July 10th on the blockchain-based civil platform. Her work has previously appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Harper's, and The Guardian. Maria's landmark 20,000-word interview with the late Anthony Bourdain was published on Popula on July 15th. It was also, you may recall, our Sunday Q&A a few weeks back. Maria is also a new Sunday Long Read contributing editor. So welcome to the Sunday Long Read, Maria, and the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's our pleasure and our honor. Uh, I want to start by talking about Bourdain Confidential, uh, an extraordinary Q&A, one of the best I've ever read, and not just because Bourdain tragically took his own life a few months after your visit with him. There's so much about this interview that's extraordinary, but I want to start with the location, because I think actually the location helped it be so great. You guys picked a place called Coliseum, as you describe it, a no-frills bar and grill on West 58th Street in Manhattan between 8th and 9th. And for two and a half hours, while Anthony Bourdain was sipping Stella's and you were sipping your Malbec, you had this great conversation. But how important was the venue for the interview being as extraordinary and as revealing as it was? Well, I only met him in person the one time, so I couldn't tell you like what the difference would be but there's no question that booze played a big part in this in this conversation (laughs) i did not expect anything like it like that to happen although you know i i do like if i'm um you know talking with somebody who i whom i would like to get to open up to me i do like to you know try and schedule a cocktail uh, if I if I can, most people open up a little bit under the influence of a drink. But um, this was it, it was I, I drank four glasses of wine in um, about two and a half hours, and it was like in the middle. It, it was like three o'clock when we met, and I just was so bamboozled by getting to meet this man whom I liked so much. And the the two of us just like, do you want another one? He kept asking me if I want another. What was I going to say? No. So I just kept saying yes and trying to drink all the water I could so I didn't just fall off my chair. It was, it was, so as far as it being a bar, like it was, it was very much, I was the one who wound up losing my inhibitions and it really turned into like a, like a big long, sprawling conversation that I just never ever anticipated anything like that happening and I mean you know I hadn't smoked for years and years and years and he's like well I don't have a cigarette you want to come and I'm like okay (laughs) and I smoked I just was I still (laughs) I can't even believe that whole thing happened and afterwards I just felt like did that just happen you know I still yeah it was pretty crazy the moment you heard the news of his death, how did you find out about it and what ran through your mind uh, immediately when you heard it, not only about Bourdain, but about the interview you still had and still had not published? Oh, disbelief, like everyone. I was, you know, reached for my phone, like in, uh, I was in, in bed with my husband and I just, I, I probably, you know, read, I, you could just see that Twitter had blown up. Uh, over Bourdain for some reason and I thought well what what is it and I just 
I, I, he, you know, his own mother said she would never have guessed that he would mm-hmm. do yeah. that. It, it, he just was the most full of life person. It just didn't, I still, okay, I can't believe it. And, and what did you think about the interview? Were you, were you sort of compelled to publish it? I know you popular had not yet launched, but were you were compelled to publish it immediately or was your thought, well, no, we'll still wait or did it change the way you were going to package it? I guess as I'm curious uh, completely. too. About, you know, I had yeah. been writing and I had been writing this quite chirpy, you know, well, you know, that was a pretty wild thing that happened. And I really liked this guy. And, you know, we talked about some crazy stuff and it was very appropriate to uh, what I'm trying to do with the publication, which is sort of like a global focused publication about kind of humanizing the world. And I had chosen him specifically because I, I felt like his values were in line with what I was going to try to achieve at Popula. And so it was, you know, writing about uh, his, his ability to humanize um, the world for people and to sort of break down barriers and his uh, kind of lack of pretense and how appealing that was, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it just none of it made any sense all of a sudden. I, I threw the whole thing out. I mean, I really threw it out. I deleted it. I didn't want to read it anymore and so then I spent a few weeks just sort of like now what you know it just being really depressed and it was a you know we get I have to write this now you know getting close to launch and this was this was my this is obviously there wasn't any more to know about him and he hadn't given any other big interviews nothing else came out and I thought my god this is the last time he really sort of talked to a reporter and I felt like a, a lot of responsibility and I, I couldn't figure out what to do about it. And then finally it kind of clicked into place for me when I thought, okay, I just have to say, I just have to tell the conversation as I just have to, I don't, I'm not going to editorialize or write an essay or anything like that. It's just as much as I can convey to people that would be doing the best I could by, by him. Were you blocked at all for a few weeks? Yes. When you were contemplating it, you were because of the pressure. You felt this this intense responsibility, as you said. Yeah, you? totally. Yeah. It's like I had this piece of tape, and I mean, it's a really intimate conversation. It's like surprising. We, you know, you and I are friends on Twitter, Don, and you know, you kind of feel like you know a person through his writing. I mean, if you're a fellow writer he was a fellow writer. Like you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, kind of the contours of that person's mind. Um, in a different and you guys also, way. and you also had a history with with Bourdain. You wrote a piece for Eater in early 2017, which he really admired. Right um, earlier and, than that. I mean, the first time. Oh, felt, I didn't realize that there was a piece even before that. Not well. He he started following me on Twitter, and we corresponded a little bit because I had okay. I had written a a piece about Lester Banks, and he and I were roughly the same age, and both. I guess, you know, huge admirers of Lester Bangs. I'd written about it in the New Yorker. It was one of the few first things I'd written on the New Yorker blog. And he he loved that piece, you know, and he he tweeted it. He followed me and he commented and all that. And that was like, I don't know, you know, really early, like 2012 or something. Oh, okay. And yeah, and so we would see each other on Twitter, you know. This was, I I was a writer who he knew who I was because of that. And then... Um, Matt Buchanan 
who was my editor at Eater, asked me to read all his books. And I said, yeah, I love that guy. I'm happy to do that. It was not even my idea. It was an assigned piece. And so I read I read all his books. I didn't realize there were so many. There was 13. I like, you know, cooked from his cookbook. I like read all his crime novels. And then I wrote this piece. And I really felt like after reading those books that I had there was a lot about him that I hadn't really suspected. You could really sort of sort of trace the darkness in him from his early work. And I was so surprised by it, and I wrote about that. And he sent this note through his assistant to me that was just really startling. It was like, you know, something to the effect of, this is the most insightful thing anyone's ever written about me and stuff like that. And I was super touched. I couldn't believe it. And so um, that kind of, our relationship was on this sort of different level after that. And, you know, still just writers on Twitter, just like you and I are, you know, kind of wave at each other across the internet. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I liked what you wrote, you know. There's a certain confederacy, I would say, of writers on Twitter. There that, is. Isn't it? Like, you sort of For understand sure. each other in this funny way. Like, through writing you know it's like writers are soul bearing people and you have this community of fellow soul bearers you know, <laughs> on twitter kind of like going like wow you know we're all here and that's really what it was like and so when i went to when i went to uh launch popula i wrote to his assistant thinking this is a complete moonshot you know but i'm starting this publication and he really loves the world, and that's what this publication is about. And it would be super cool if he could spend a few minutes with me and talk about that. And like within an hour, it was like, yeah, he'll be in town next week and he'll meet. And I just was like, you know, running around my house, like making sounds that only dogs can hear. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so happy, you know, because it's such a great thing for me, for, for my publication right this was like a big Absolutely. celebrity interview like a big favor you know from somebody so eminent it's the big get for sure right and so yeah. then you know how it is when you're interviewing somebody really famous you get all these instructions um and it was like either of these two places a bar or a, or a bakery and i thought a bar he'll talk to me more and i thought this would be like you know one of those little teeny celebrity interviews and he'll have minders and they'll rush him off and It'll uh, be, you know, this instantaneous thing. And I, I I was really, like, focused, you know, and ready to talk about tourism and materialism and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and I mean, the, you know, the next thing I knew, two and a half hours had gone by, and I was in his apartment. It was really bizarre. <laughs> I know. I, lo I love that. Well, will you write, and I want to quote you from Bourdain Confidential, uh, when you talk about the two and a half hours you spent in the comfy Irish bar, you say, blabbing about everything under the sun. And you write, the transcript of this conversation is in excess of 20,000 words, and nobody bothered us in all that time. It was like there was a force field around him, which... I, I love that. I've had that experience myself a couple of times with famous people, too, where you're just in this public place. Everybody sort of recognizes the person you're with, and yet nobody approaches. And you do feel as if there's a force field around him, but also around, around you. And 
the intimacy of the conversation, Maria, is one of the things I'm really curious about. I mean, it's almost as if by the end of the conversation when you were up in his uh, apartment that you say was like a almost like a hotel room because there wasn't much furniture and it was fresh and new. You were almost finishing each other's sentences, it seemed like. Um, and, you know, you were calling him dude at one point or a couple points. And, you know, you were like really like these old soulmates. And that's an amazing thing. And a lot of young writers listen to this podcast. So how did you get there? I mean, I realize he loved your earlier work. Um, and by the way, about the Eater piece, he put on Twitter that the story was uncomfortably close to the bone which were his words, which is maybe the highest compliment you can get from anybody, particularly Anthony Bourdain. But but how did you how did that happen? Was it just natural, serendipitous? Well, don't forget, we've been reading each other a long time. I mean, I'm going to return to the point I made earlier. Writers are a funny, funny breed of people. We almost are more ourselves on the page than we are um, kind of up close and personal. Like the person who knows your work the best, who has responded to it kind of the way that you meant it, is the person that you're going to um, trust. Yes. And I would so say true. that there was a mutual trust. You know, it was just a lucky thing. Like, we're very close in age, uh, liked a lot of the same music. He, like, you know, he dedicated one of his books to Johnny, Joey, and Dee Dee, you know. And I mean, that that to me is like as a matter of course, right? Like if you had some, I don't know, some eighteen year old kid probably doesn't even know who Johnny, Joey, and Dee Dee are. You know what I mean? Like that <laughs> kind of. I mean, or maybe they do. I don't know. But um, a lot of it was kind of being from the same era and coming up reading the same stuff. And so there's like because we knew each other's work and knew each other like as as writers. Like the the minute we sat down, there was already some knowledge. So, but I mean, I think any young writer who wants to sort of replicate the 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 feeling of um, being on a level with somebody who's really eminent in your in your own field. I mean, like it's it's a question of being very very familiar with that person's work. Like the more familiar you are with their work, and the more that you can communicate to them that you. Um, understand and respect what it was they were trying to achieve in it, even at the times that you may not have agreed with what was being said. I, th I think that's the main thing that you can do with an interview subject is to be as cognizant as possible and as respectful as possible of, of his or her work and intentions. It's great advice. It's do your homework. Uh, so few journalists do. I mean, you really stand out instantly if you are intimately familiar with a person's, whether it's writing, speeches, their life, their um, life yeah. choices, choices they've made. And um, it's it's not that hard. I mean, it's tough for a young journalist who may not have the amount of time to devote to the homework. But even if you're doing an interview, let's say, and you have an hour, that hour should be completely devoted to learning as much about the subject that you're going to get on the phone as possible, right? I mean, every yeah. moment should be devoted to learning as much so your questions are informed. And and subjects, particularly famous ones, they know. They know instantly. They can tell if somebody has really done their homework and will open up far more and have far more time and patience 
and empathy for the journalist if she has done that kind of homework that you're talking about. It's really critical. Oh, yeah. But when you, when you know something, when you surprise your interview subject with something that they've never heard before, I, I, maybe the favorite, my favorite piece of writing I've done was a profile of Jerry Jones, the Cowboys owner back in 2014. And I persuaded him to give me access and spend an entire summer with me in a bar and in the Ritz Carlton in Atlanta. And I just walked up to him and shook his hand. It was during, at the end of the day at an NFL owners meeting, he was sitting there with a double whiskey in front of him. And I happened to mention that his oldest son, Stephen, who's the sort of de facto or general manager in waiting of the Cowboys, his oldest son, was born one day before me. And you should have seen his face. It just lit up. When, what, and it said July 21st, 1964. And, you know, just that knowing that little piece of trivia. Exactly. Uh, and having done so much homework and asking him informed questions from the beginning is why he agreed. If I had just gone and winged it and only knew a couple things, I wouldn't have gotten them. So it's, it's critical for sure. Uh, back to the Bourdain interview. I'm curious how you made the choice to divide the interview thematically. You talked about all that pressure you were felt in putting it together. Why did you choose to do that? I thought it worked beautifully, but was it because just you wanted to have the reader in the moment? Or, 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 or were you going back and forth in time? I was curious about that, Maria. Or, or did it follow the actual transcript? And it was just a way to sort of simplify things for the reader. It was made, it's mainly uh, chronological, not completely. I mean, it, the, the final published piece is like not, not quite 14,000 words, I think. And I had anticipated that it would be cut quite a bit. I didn't think anybody was going to be willing to read that much. And so, you know, I went to my my editor. Well, there were a couple of them. I had I had like pretty much everybody who's working at Popular, which is like five editors at that point, like look it over. And I expected there to be notes. You got to cut this and that, you know. And Suja Hader, a really brilliant young writer that is working with me, um, said, you can't cut this. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? I'm like, really? I'm like, I don't know. That's really long. Like, yeah, don't touch like, it. Oh, my God. It's perfect, as is. Which, as a writer, of course, you love to hear, right? Like, don't you don't have to cut this. I know, just, right? Just run that I had baby. worked on it a lot. You know, the, I had worked on it so much. It's such a sad thing yeah. for me that... Uh, I was I was glad to I was glad to put it to bed and I thought well you know it's too long and but whatever it's it'll be fine and and then it just turned into a, a thing and a lot of people a lot of people read it it was this ex- it was this extraordinary thing it went viral and I and I want to ask you about that how many how many people unique not quite half a million on the wow at a brand wow, new publication I mean, that's it was a, just really extraordinary like we we're that yeah that's extraordinary yeah and. Of course, you know, that's how popular was introduced to probably nearly all of those readers. And how did that make you feel that, that, that this particular Terrible. piece that was so sad? Did it really? Well. Why? I, I, I just, it had been such a happy afternoon for me. It had, it had been such a neat thing. I, I thought we were going to be friends forever, like. It just never occurred to me that I would never see him again. It's just like, you know, uh, here's my eminent colleague who's been so generous. I sh- I'll be able to thank him for this amazing, fun thing. Like, you know, right. like it's just, it's devastating. I still am like completely gutted by the 
whole thing. And I'm so grateful, you know, uh, I'm so grateful, but there was nobody to be grateful to. And it's just hurts every day. Wow. Well, you know, you did an extraordinary thing. You gave the world his really his it's, it's kind of a, a document that's a, a testament to his spirit and how his life and his worldview. And uh, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And the way you put it together, you made all the right choices, Maria. You should be very, very proud of it. Was there one thing he said that surprised you? Everything about him was or, a, a pleasant surprise. He was so generous. He was so, he's such a good listener, right? Like all the great talkers in the world are listeners first and foremost. And like, you know, so genuinely interested in the answer to your question or whatever. And the thing that I loved the most and I think of uh, the most often and sort of thinking back to that afternoon is like, he was the sort of person who, if if he could make you laugh, he would sort of try to one-up his own joke, you know? Like, he really liked <laughs> making people laugh, you know? And then he would say another funny thing. And so you'd just be completely helpless. Like, you know, there's a... Um, I shared a little bit of the audio with uh, Manoush Somorodi at the ZigZag podcast. Your listeners might like to look that up, but um, they're colleagues at, at Civil with me. And so they asked me and he was like, I wasn't going to share it, you know, because it's like super painful. But um, Manoush talked me into like cutting a few pieces of it for her. And at the end, you know, I mean, I was like, I mean, I, you know, this is embarrassing, but I was drunk, you know, I drank a lot of wine in a very short <laughs> amount of time. And so it was quite rollicking by the end. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm just shrieking because like, by this time, he has figured out how to make me laugh, you know, and he just would, he was really enjoyed that he you could see that this was everybody I've ever talked to who spent time with him will tell you the same thing. Like, his brother called me or like emailed me actually after the interview came out and said, how much he liked it. And he said he was like that with everyone. You know, he would meet people and, and they would love him after just an, one afternoon. You know, he was a gift that he had. And you can just sort of tell. He would figure out how to make that person have fun, or me anyway. Like he would figure out how to make you have fun and laugh and then go for as long as you could both stand it, you know, and just laugh your heads off. And it was pretty great. Yeah, there's a great, there, there's so many hilarious moments but one of my favorites is toward the end so this is probably during your fourth Malbec Maria <laughs> when um you said when you when you were sort of bemoaning Obama and said you loved him you had loved him but then you said but like he fucked us and he got on the fucking jet ski with Richard Branson right after he got out of the White House and I'm like dude and then Bourdain says so and then you say is that really the first look that you want you are a guy with a brand you know that you would not do that if it were you. And then Bourdain says, no, I wouldn't. And then you say, you would not. Why not? He says, um, because I'm vain. And then your response just is shrieks in brackets, which I just <laughs> love. Can, I love his answer. So, I'm vain. <laughs> yeah. I, it's, it, and the way it, he it's smiled, just, it's, you it's would just, die, you know. I mean, just you could sort of write, and it's only on the page, but you can yeah. see him smiling. You know, if you know Bourdain through the TV show, you know, you can hear him, you can see it. Uh, I love the shrieks. 
uh, I just laughed out loud when I saw that. And then he keeps going on and talks about how France is kind of <laughs> because, a douche. And anyway, everybody yeah. listening should go back and read the entire Q&A um, that Maria did with uh, the late Anthony Bourdain. It, it really is amazing. It's one of my favorite um, pieces of work of the year, of this long, horrible, toxic year. It's And, and, and of course... It's tragic. There's tragedy in it. There's things he says that, you know, um, I, I don't want to give it away. I want people to go and, and if they haven't, um, go and find it. But yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's a tragic story, but it's also very hopeful and life affirming at the same time, which is also kind of extraordinary that, that a piece of work can do that. Thank you so much. Uh, so a, congratulations. That means a lot to me. You know, I think really highly of your work and it means a lot. Thank well, thank you. you. Um, well, I want to ask about Popula. Um, but oh, before we do this, one other thing about the venue I wanted to tell you, and I want to I have a confession to make, Maria. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York, and uh, I actually had to meet somebody at the Time Warner Center for dinner. And I had a couple of hours before then, and I was meeting a friend of mine, Pablo Torre, who works at ESPN for a drink. And I said, Let, let's go to this place called Coliseum. It's this Irish bar on West 58th, and I knew about it, of course, from your story. So I show up, and I'm there about 20 minutes before Pablo, and it's shut down. I know. It's closed. I know. Oh, you know. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know if you knew. Well, I was so heartbroken. People were emailing me. There's a couple guys out front. Yeah. Oh, really? And I was like, oh, man, this place is shut down. That's so sad. Just minutes later. So you didn't know. Oh, it was just minutes later after the story? After after your... Oh, in February it closed? After your guys... Oh, after the story was published? I mean, it seems like minutes to me. I thought this is like... You know, because you know what these bars are like. Yeah. there's so many and they're, and they're really cool. And like, you know, like I, like I say the story of like the, the decor is impossible. The people have been there forever. They look like nothing has changed since like 1974. Like that's the kind of place I was in the mood for that day. And I was so I'm disappointed. So sorry. I so know. Shut down. I was like, no, no. Yeah, no, it's just, I, I just, I wanted to be in that location yeah. uh, and sort of pay my respects to your story and also to the late, the late great Anthony Bourdain. So I just, I did want to tell yeah. you that as well before we move on here. So let's talk about Popula. This is a fascinating project. It is a blockchain publication. Explain what that is to our listeners. The Civil Network is an Ethereum-based network that runs on the Ethereum platform. I don't know how much your readers are going to know about like Bitcoin or blockchain technology, but basically it's a record-keeping system. That's all that Bitcoin and, and blockchain technology really are. And it's a way of, of encouraging a, a, a crypto economy to form around a cryptocurrency token it's called a civil token. You'll be able to like tip writers using this. And, uh, you know, I'm instituting a system for commenting where only subscribers who hold civil tokens can comment, you know, to sort of protect against trolls and sort of Cambridge Analytica and stuff like that. And additionally, everything we publish will eventually be archived onto the Ethereum blockchain, which means that it can never be removed because the Ethereum network is stored over, like I think about 20,000 independently operated computers all over the world. So it's like this giant network. I think if people are sort of familiar with like how it's sort of Napster or like BitTorrent used to be where, you know, there's a million computers and they all are sharing and holding this information. So you'd have to shut them all down in order to get rid of the information. That's part of what blockchain technology does. So part of it is the record keeping, part of it is the crypto economy, 
part of it is that um, the people who are making this happen, civil, are instituting a system uh, whereby people who participate in the network can vote on letting new publications on. Like, say you had like a hate speech publication and they tried to get on the civil network. Okay. Anybody who tries to get on has to stake a certain amount of cryptocurrency tokens and you risk that. And then you make an application that is vetted and all the other participants in the network can decide whether or not it's okay for you to publish. And if it is, you get passed and whitelisted and then you can publish on the network. It's kind of like a, a community of people who are interested in honest journalism. And it's uh, it's just this really interesting experiment. I've been wanting to try it ever since I first learned about Bitcoin. Like my first piece about it was in The New Yorker in April of 2013. And ever since then, I have known that like what this thing was really for was record keeping. And as a journalist, you know, like incorruptible records are of great interest to me. So I, I love the publication that we're doing. I was invited to do this, but like the platform is at least as important to me as the publication because it's a chance to um, experiment and create new payment models for journalism, to create systems to enforce integrity and, you know, community-based systems where, it, you know, it's, it's distributed. So there's not authorities who are able to shut you off and, and some billionaire gets mad at you and tries to buy your publication and shut it down. That is not possible with this type of of uh, organization. Right. You can't have a gawker, can't have a gawker situation. No, you where can't. Somebody yeah. comes along, right. Some comes along and buys the archives and can carefully curate out what uh, they may not like that has been published about them in the past. Or um, just shut it down. Like what happened with DNA. Or just shut yeah. it down. Or just shut it down with like happened at DNA exactly. So if if so if I become a subscriber of Popula, h- how do I do that? I show up on the site. I need one of these civil tokens. No, right? You oh, don't, don't have to. You can go there. Like you know, the token doesn't launch until there's there's a the whole token launch thing is happening in September. Oh, okay. Um, you can find out about it on Popula.com. But like Popula.com is always just going to be a regular website. You can just visit it and read it. You can subscribe using a Visa card. You don't have to participate on the crypto side to just hang out and and read it. You will have to if you want to use the sort of special features, you know, if you want to um, uh, say comment. And so we're going to do at Popula is um, make it so that it costs you a tiny bit for every comment you make, just like the equivalent of a few cents. And you can only comment if you are a subscriber. So at that point, you are going to need a little bit of cryptocurrency. But you don't have to just to come and read it. People are reading it now. It's been going since like the 10th of July. And I'm having an absolute ball doing it. It's been really super fun. I'm assuming that a lot of the readers are not going to want to deal with the blockchain or crypto aspect right um i mean i'm, I'm just maybe. i'm curious how many have embraced it or, or or maybe maybe i'm asking it in too pessimistic a way H- have have people embraced the blockchain crypto aspect um 
I don't know how much you remember about the dawn of the internet. I, <laughs> I do remember it. Yes, I'm I'm in my mid fifties. I remember yeah. it very well when I was in my twenties. I had an editor at the Miami Herald back in 1994, who used to spend all his days sort of surfing on AOL uh, as opposed to being an editor. So yeah, I, re- I remember it well. The dawn. Yeah, and there was this moment where people would be asking, like, "Are you on email?" <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember those questions. Questions like that, absolutely. And. It was just this sort of hobbyist thing. It yeah. was a little bit kind of uh, eccentric at first. And, you know, people would be saying, no, everybody's going to be using this. And people would be like, I don't know, man. You know, computers, I don't know. And, you know. <laughs> here we are. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. So I, it's there's a big echo for me, you know, in like the whole cryptocurrency world. It's just a gigantic reminder. I mean, I just, there's no doubt in my mind that this is, this is, identical. Written journalism is one form publishing can take, of course, but do the benefits of blockchain apply to other forms of publishing? I'm talking the, about books. The benefits of blockchain technology apply to anywhere where you need incorruptible records. So like the big thing to me is archiving. And so like where book publishing is concerned, this is like a huge thing, right? Like, you know, we have to rethink how copyright works, we have to rethink like, and all these things are enforceable using blockchain technology without necessarily having to have recourse to a copyright office, say, for example, like all these things could be automated, like by the government, you could track, it's not just expenditures that you can track, you can track any kind of um, event, like the publication of a book, or, uh, you know, you could set up royalty payment systems. This has been looked at for a long time since it started, like in 2009 was like the sort of dawn of Bitcoin. And all this time, it's going to be like 10 years now, January. Um, people have been thinking about what can we use this for? And one of the first things people thought of is royalties, like for music publishing. There's a company called Ujo that is a portfolio company of consensus that is uh, backing civil, which is the company that I'm working with, uh, to do royalties for musicians. Like we're all upset that like, you know, musicians don't see enough money for their work anymore, you know, compared to what they got back in the days of vinyl albums. And, you know, they're all, it's such a struggle for them to make a living now. This, this is a, a way for them to, uh, to kind of get, get that back, you know, to like, Get, get control of the relationship between them, their work and their listeners. And it's the same thing, like everywhere you publish, where you have readers that you're going to be able to have a direct relationship with, be able to compensate you directly. Um, this is useful. This is maybe the first draft of something that's going to take a long, a long time to figure out, but I'm just so proud to be at the forefront of making a sustainable economy and and an economy of of integrity for journalism we need it so desperately right now but you have this cool you have this cool entrepreneurial streak uh, to you which i love well i like to roll the dice there's no doubt yeah 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 you do and uh you wrote about another entrepreneur, uh, Mark Zuckerberg for Medium. The story is entitled "The Smallness of Mark Zuckerberg." This is one of my favorite pieces by you, Maria. I just <laughs> I was smiled when I read this from beginning to end. I want to just read one paragraph or maybe two to our listeners really quickly here, and then ask you about the story. 
you say, but look a little closer and you'll find that Zuckerberg is about one Persian cat shy of a Bond villain. Just in case you hadn't already noticed that billionaires don't make good world leaders. This man has no business running for office. And as someone who hired a full-time pollster to monitor his approval ratings, it really would appear that he intends to. People who seek high office should have a long record of honesty, good judgment, and good character. That should not be too much to ask, but it disqualifies a lot of people, Mark Zuckerberg among them. Just fantastic writing. I mean, it's uh, just mm-hmm. crushed him. Yeah, anger is a, anger is a fuel for, for writing, <laughs> definitely, as you know. Yes. So, so was that that was probably an easy one to write. I got that sense. Oh, yeah. That it just poured out, right? You it's bet. Just, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Not a fan. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, one of the things I'm really thrilled to know about you with Popular is you're going to continue to write. I mean, obviously, you're the editor-in-chief, and that takes a lot of work, but you are going to continue to write pieces you have been um, beyond uh, the story about uh, the Bourdain interview. Uh, you, did a, you did a great um, RIP piece about uh, the great Jonathan Gold as well, which we'll also link, and I, and I highly recommend. Um, what are other subjects that are interesting you and that you will be writing about in the future at Popular? Um, I have... I have some medical pieces that I'm really excited about. Oh, cool. Yeah. I like, um, I started writing about uh, sort of the the ethos um, of doctoring, you know, like from the, from the patient's perspective, like I'm a big fan of Atul Gawande and stuff, but um, I wrote a piece. My daughter was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis like in 2014. She's like completely fine. She doesn't have any symptoms. She had like, I don't know how much you guys know about this, but like you, it's a neurological disorder that comes in flares and like a certain number of people will just get one flare and that's all they ever get. And they never get sick again. And my daughter um, has had like just a couple and, you know, has been treated and she's like a hundred percent. Okay. But it's like, can, it's a degenerative illness. It's really poorly understood. And some people like, you know, they wind up in a wheelchair and it's like super scary. So she, um, I re- I I wrote about this uh, in a quite long piece that turned up at Long Reads, and like after that, I kind of kept up my interest in sort of medical writing and and reading, um, you know, kind of keep kind of keeping up with uh, everything to do with uh, randomized controlled trials is a thing that I became really interested in, and sort of medical hucksterism, you know, became like, I became a very keen student of that. So there's going to be quite a bit of that coming in Populous soon. Right. Um, I've got an Amazon piece that if you like the Zuckerberg one, I think you'll like the Amazon one. <laughs> Good. Good. I can't wait for that. I think we linked your piece um, about your daughter in the newsletter. I'm almost certain we did. Um, oh, I think, you know, I think so. That's right. Yeah, we did. Yeah, she's totally and, uh, fine. Like, touch wood, like zero. Like, you know, it's been. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, How old is yeah. your daughter? She's going to be 27. And she's okay. been, like, you know, well over three years with without any any symptoms. Fabulous. Yeah. That's great. Super happy That's great about news. that. I want to end with a question that you asked Bourdain, because I love this question, but I want to, you pose it to him, but I want to pose it to you. Do you think of yourself as an artist? Yes. Why? He said no, but, but I want to ask, but I want to find out why you, why you do. 
I think that I don't have a I don't have precious feelings about, you know, an artist being like a, a special thing that a person is born with. I think of like art as a um, sort of sort of a catch all phrase of a communicator. I think artists are communicators and I'm, I'm very proud to be one. Especially now, especially at this moment. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially yep. now. Absolutely. Well, do you, well, what about you? Do you think of yourself as one? Uh, I do. I do. It's, you know, it it has a connotation, the word, a little bit of pretentiousness mm-hmm. for, for me. I mean, you know, I don't call myself a journalist. I call myself a reporter. Um, I just out I of like humility, I word, see. You know, yeah, I, I think yeah, a, a little, a, a little, a little bit, uh, probably a lot, yeah. But I just it's 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 reporting. You know, I spend most of my time talking to people on the phone or in person. You are a literary bars, artist. Like, <laughs> Let me just tell you, that is, that, that is very nice of you to <laughs> well, say. I don't, I don't, I. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's very sweet of you to say. But, you know, I just, I've, I always wanted to be a reporter. I wanted to be a writer and a reporter when I was a kid, and I'm just lucky. And, and we're, we're both very yeah, lucky. We get to do what are. we love. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think, I don't, I've never said, oh, I'm an artist. I just wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't agree with that. That's so funny, because I think of it as being a very humble term, but, like, I, I now see that people think of it as like, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm going to, I'm wearing a beret and <laughs> you know, in a cartoon. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like Salvador bit, Dali or something. Like I mean, and, you know, Bourdain, of course, you know, you were surprised when he said he didn't consider himself an artist. And he said, no, he said, I'm, I am spoiled. And that from the very beginning, I've always and only made the television I wanted to make. And as soon as I could, I told whoever was involved to go fuck themselves and somehow landed on my feet someplace else with somebody else who was willing to indulge me in even grander fashion. So I haven't had to deal with the grim reality of, well, you either do the best burgers in America show or you have no work at all. I haven't had to live with that. I haven't had to be particularly nice to people I don't like ever. And that really spoke to me, Maria, because I've been very lucky in my life. I've only had three jobs. I've been kind of been able to do what I want to do at all three of them, Mm -hmm. which is extraordinary, knock on wood, because tomorrow I'm sure that, as as David Carr said, the caper will end. (laughs) But, you know, it's just, it's, that really, really spoke to me. So it's like, yeah, no, I'm not an artist. I'm just, I'm a lucky person who's been able to kind of call my own shots and work and do the work that I love. And, and, um, I don't know, maybe the, maybe he was thinking of artists a little bit the way I do in the sense that it's a, maybe it's a little too much of a highfalutin term. Um, you know, as you said, with that particular hat or whatever, um, or maybe it's like uh, he thought of it as like a struggle or, or that's right. That's exactly right. Or maybe it's a struggle because he went right to the great fortune he's had. And I think the same way, like, yeah, the artist is somebody who is starving or, 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 you know, barely making it. Um, Whose work is hard for him. uh, Right. It's a struggle, right. Struggle maybe to make ends meet, but also a struggle to, to get the work out into the world. And because it's been, it was pretty effortless for Bourdain. I'm I'm not going to pretend my, my work's been effortless, but it's been, hasn't been a huge struggle most of the time. I'm fortunate. So yeah. So artist, I think doesn't quite fit. Yeah. But see, this is where I I just disagree with you because like it's maybe not maybe we've been lucky to get to practice a craft that you love and work on but like just because you have the joy of it you know because you love reading and because you love other um other writers i mean like okay put it this way 
the writers you love that you grew up reading, like who's your favorite? Like who, who do you consider a model for your own work the most? If there was just one, that's a really hard question. There's too many. Uh, I mean, as as, well, my literary hero as a kid, um, and and still is is F. Scott Fitzgerald, who whom you would consider an artist, right? Absolutely. Okay, so no question. Like, you're kind of following in the footsteps of this thing that you loved when you were a kid, and I will also say, your your work bears traces of that. You're like very much in the American tradition of like elegant prose and the service of saying true things about American culture. That's your thing. So your work bears traces of the thing that you love, that you know is art. It just should, and and learning that and following in that, like, I don't know how everybody else feels about it, but to me it's like a craft that you've given your life to. And it doesn't ha- have to be painful to be like the struggle of an artist to uh, make a voice and make a body of work and be faithful, like keep the faith with the people who taught you, like in your case, Fitzgerald, you know, and mine and Anthony Bourdain's like Lester Banks or whoever, right? Um, I mean, any number of people, like you say, like we're keeping the faith with the thing. And that to me is what an artist is. Oh, that's a great way to end this. And this is now officially my favorite Sunday Long Read podcast because of all the nice things you said in the last <laughs> two minutes. Uh, Maria, oh my God, so nice. And, and, and I'm so grateful to you for your time today. It's been so much fun to chat finally. As you say, we've been Twitter buddies for a long time and have been waving at each other uh, across from across the country and also from across the interwebs. Uh, for a long time. So it's been great to to chat with you. Best of luck with Popula. Thank you so uh, much. Re- I enjoyed we'll every minute. Thank you, Don. And now that you're a Sunday Long Read contributing editor, you'll be getting a uh, wave for me to be uh, a guest editor in one of these newsletters coming up too, Maria. So gird yourself for that. Can't wait. Yeah, it'll be fun. It, it'll be fun. Thank you. Thanks again, Maria. Really appreciate your time today. It was today. great. Maria Bustios has been my guest here on the Sunday Long Read podcast. She is the editor-in-chief of Popula, an alternative news and culture magazine that launched on July 10th on the blockchain-based civil platform. Thank you again, Maria. You've been listening to the Sunday Long Read podcast. If you like what you just heard, please consider giving us a kind review on our podcast page at Apple iTunes. This podcast is a byproduct of the Sunday Long Read newsletter, Every Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, the best journalism of the previous week drops in your inbox. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe is where you can find us. Our producer today is Jonathan Yales. Thank you, John, for all of your hard work on this one. We will be back soon with more wonderful guests like Maria. So stick around. I'm Don Van Natta. We'll see you soon. Thank you.